0: i
1: Legionaries, ladies and gentlemen this is General Lance and uh, this is Sergeant Barnes here interviewing Andreas and you'll know him as uh, a Machina on Twitter and uh welcome Andreas welcome to the transmission to the war room Salve
0: salve gratias tibi ago thank
1: you very much Lance <laughs> it's a uh, real Salve pleasure to salve so i guess you pronounce it uh like the uh, classical romans did uh with a w instead of a v so instead of envedicti it's uh wiki, right right
0: right yeah that's the uh the big um uh discovery over the last uh decade or so is uh recovering the lost pronunciation of classical latin in the roman period as julius caesar would have spoken it and uh that there's been a, a amazing spoken community revival in classical latin using this pronunciation style But the uh, 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 Italian-based versions uh, promoted by the Catholic Church is primarily uh, more popular in Europe and and Italy, and... it sounds a lot more Italian, like you, you mentioned, and uh, I don't like it, <laughs> so I don't speak it. It sounds, it sounds weird to me. You know, when when you go to, like, the United Kingdom, and everyone's speaking in their, their British accent, and after a while, you're just like, you know, I don't want to sound like these people at all. <laughs> that's kind of that's my, my opinion on church Latin.
1: So that's the uh, esoteric uh, reason behind the American Revolution. It's just that we thought their accent was whack. No. <laughs> but um, so, I yeah. mean, I, you know, aside from, of course, being a Latin aficionado and someone adept in classical understanding of the world, um, I think the, the other thing that you bring to the table here is obviously the geopolitical geopolit- aspect. And uh, there are a lot of happenings. And I figure we'll just dive in head first and just talk about the 5000 pound elephant JDAM in the room. Uh, you know, the Israel invasion of Palestine. Um, I mean, what's your first impressions? And I think that we'll just go in from there.
0: Yeah, uh, great topic. And um, yeah, very frightening one, very frightening one. And uh, also a uh, uh, world-changing one. Uh, the consequences of what we've been witnessing uh, over the last month are uh, are— Unparalleled in in history. I think this vastly exceeds the risks that uh, we can can use to quantify or qualify what kind of risk the risk the world are in based on prior uh, wars, World War II, World War One. This is uh, completely different. It's uh, we live in a globalized world now. There are uh, Palestinian. Uh, uh, sympathizers or or actual palestinians all over the western world and the the risks that we are all uh, under because of this conflict is uh, truly terrifying
1: you know it's it's funny that you say that because i think the entire last half of the century has been characterized by this move to globalization and of course the fall of the soviet union would herald a a century, or, or the end of history. I, I hate Francis Fukuyama. If Francis Fukuyama is listening to this. By the way, you ruined my <laughs> life. I read your book when I was 15. I have a vendetta against you. You have no choice. I, I will. I'll be following you on Twitter. Anyway, uh, point being is that um, I think the most interesting thing is that aside from having, and, and you know, from my military background, we're, we're considering supply chains and so on and so forth in, in a military setting. I think people mistake the importance of ethnic groups and their diaspora. For instance, th- uh, recently there was a Nagarabakh, Nagah- I don't know how you pronounce it, the Armenian-Nazeri War, um, and there are significant lobbies for both sides in Washington. And it's kind of like the issue with having um, our type of, it's not even an empire really, it's just this Borg, um, is that all these impulses, these uh, incentive impulses, you know, they inflame across the world and they have these uh, effects, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I think the most interesting thing that's happened since uh, specifically 91 is the decline of Ba'athism as a force and the ascendancy of international Islam, as well as of course, um, you know, the pinkoist Western Gramsciite kind of communism that's kind of made an unholy alliance Um, But in any case, I think the most interesting aspect we're seeing is this huge rift in the left, which is one, on the one side, is, of course, uh, the Trotskyite neocons uh, backing uh, Israel, and then the other side, which is the Gramsciite (laughs) pinkos uh, backing the Palestinians. I mean, could you comment on that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I can. And um, there is, uh, what what we're, we're seeing unfold now, Has uh, honestly, you know, been planned for a long time by the powers that be, and uh, the uh, sheer number of um, uh, 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 let's just call them uh, Islamists or uh, Zionists or a Christian um interest groups in this very small part of the world is uh really really um passionate and um unbridled in what they want and i think it's probably a a best uh one of the best descriptions of politics as a zero-sum game right now is the war in gaza because there's only going to be one winner in this right it's going to be winner take all and then the other side gets physically removed and uh that's really scary. And and you talked about um you know that there's ethnic components about this, but uh, and you see in the mainstream media how um the narrative is formulated that uh Israel has a right to defend itself and that's a, a talking point um, that they promote, which ignores the facts of what we're witnessing um, on the ground in Gaza is a religious war. This is a war to the death between uh, you know, interrelated ethnic groups that have hated each other for thousands of years and will likely always hate each other and uh, for <laughs> other <laughs> Groups or nations, or, or whatever, to um, bring themselves into this conflict is opening yourselves up to um, uh, irrational <laughs> hatred and risks that is well really no one should ever really want to do that like no one walks into a religious war willingly thinking oh yeah we're we're going to be the good guys here we're going to mop them up in 6 days or 6 weeks and uh, we'll be heroes right that's that's not what's happening
1: yeah i mean the funny thing is that i feel like in the american concept it's like everything is uh, very quick wars very like decisive wars especially since world war 1 and 2 like we have this misconception that all wars should be decisively ended or won and obviously that's not something you can do with the middle east i mean <laughs> nothing wins in the middle east I mean, we've experienced that we lost strategically in iraq because it's become functionally a proxy of iran which is another adversary of ours and we lost outright in afghanistan and i don't really necessarily understand what people seem to gain from an American perspective in meddling ourselves with this conflict, which has nothing to do with us, we have, in fact it's just an albatross around our neck that we should just completely cut loose you know what I mean, I I don't know how you feel about it but I feel like it's just such a a waste of money and time and blood that I assume that they're trying to get us entangled in
0: Yeah there's, uh, I'm I'm, I agree with you on those points and there's a Uh, unfortunate um, consequences of our uh, national leadership across the spectrum, um, being messianic, uh, apocalyptic, uh, (laughs) uh, religious fanatics that uh, want more than anything to uh, rebuild the uh, Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In order to bring about um, uh, second prophetic coming. statements, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Bring about those those prophecies that uh, they hold so dear. And what a brilliant play, right? Yeah, it's no, it's real brilliant brilliant politic. Uh,
1: you, yeah, you wouldn't understand <laughs> us. Roots, yeah, we wouldn't like, understand. Like
0: how, <laughs> how does a group of uh, six to seven million people, or, you know, eight or nine around the world, uh, get? You know, allies of 300 to 400 to 500 million, like uh, backing them in this project. And it's through religion, it's through um, even the the lens that, that as you mentioned, the uh, left wing politics, like there is this dichotomy of uh, uh, anti colonial sentiment that is really popular in the left that. Uh, they're they're using to want to just to to justify the elimination of uh, Israelis, which uh, is uh, a pretty <laughs> gnarly or ugly worldview. Anyway, you look at it. And uh, those are this. Uh, and if you look at, uh, like the right wing approach for this is, we just want uh, to stay out of it, right? <laughs> like We want to be the reasonable person in the room. And that is completely what we, we're not hearing
1: yeah. in
0: Congress, yeah. in the media, or anything like that. Anywhere where the Zionists are in ascendancy, is, there is a uh, one party line on what's acceptable. You've probably seen um, videos of uh, evangelists on, on Twitter um, espousing their views on this matter. And uh, it's really, r- really terrible. Uh, I'm. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm definitely not. Um, I, I'm not optimistic uh, about uh, uh, anything.
1: Well, about... well you sh- you should defer to their opinion because apparently the adults are in the room. You know what I mean? But no, I, I joke a, a little bit too much. But I say, uh, just for the benefit of the audience here, let me just break it down for the audience where where things stand geopolitically. Um, just today, of course, uh, there are concentrations of Hezbollah, which is a proxy of Iran, um, and Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps. Members apparently concentrating on the southern Lebanese border, uh, which are threatening to either invade or to conflict with uh, the IDF, as well as of course Hamas. And here's the issue that I think a lot of people don't understand: um, is that a lot of the Middle East is already embroiled in this kind of cold war, and it's always it's between Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the trucial states, which is Qatar, Oman, and so on. And, of course, you know, the uh, the specter in the room, which is uh, radical Islam. Now, all of these factions hate each other, and a lot of them actually are cozy to Israel, had it not been for what's happening now, which is the disproportionate abuse of violence, which is aimed at ethnically cleansing the area... Um, and somehow, this is a massive blunder because what's ha- what's happening is basically all these Arab states and even Persian states, of course, they're not Arab, and Turkish uh, forces are actually aligning against Israel. And, I mean, you see this kind of shortcoming happen previously with Ukraine, which is basically Russia, China, and Iran all hated each other historically. Even through the Cold War, there were border clashes between the PRC and, and the Soviet Union. But, uh, you know, ever since Kissinger left office, and say what you want about Kissinger, but at least he was a shrewd diplomat and understood how the balance of powers lie and how to, you know, play one enemy off the other. Basically, whoever's in the State Department formulating whatever plan <laughs> managed to galvanize all these mutually hating opponents against us. And I think that's what's happening in a microcosm in the Middle East. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but where, where's your opinion on that?
0: Yeah, well, that's a a huge topic. Um, I'd like to just uh, focus in on a a second on um, when you were talking about the ethnic cleansing going on in Gaza and the the indiscriminate use of bombs in residential neighborhoods, uh, the collective punishment of civilians for crimes. Um, These are actions that uh, has been considered Uh, inexcusable or unacceptable for anywhere else on earth, right? And (laughs) think of the the Texas border uh, uh, controversy a couple years ago with the U.S. Border Patrol uh, member accused of using a whip on a uh, illegal immigrant, which didn't happen, but he was accused of that, right? Compare that with just using bomb, uh, blockbuster bombs, on entire neighborhoods um <laughs> like like there, there there is no like there, there is no um re- restraint involved in use of military force here that is uh an unacceptable use of military force by standards of uh international law which are you know pseudo laws but let's just say for you know um the, the case of argument that murdering civilians is wrong right, right. like that's what I was raised in that values, I accept that values, but um, that's not what um, Israel is doing. And Israel for decades has been uh, using a, uh, a continuum of overwhelming force uh, from violent um, actors in the region. Uh, they they, they, they call, classify uh, terrorist activities there as a uh, military counterinsurgency strategy Versus a uh, law enforcement and prosecution one, mm-hmm. right? So th- there is when the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, like everything looks like a nail. Right. And so there, there will be no self-restraint. It's a religious war. These are, these are people that have uh, countless reasons to hate each other. Like I, I'm not going to argue on that I'm, um, I'll condemn violence wherever wherever happens in the world. Um, But for a peace process to start, or or even a ceasefire to start, there's going to have to be a desire to uh, lower the costs of uh, human suffering and death, and there is none of that. It doesn't exist anywhere. Like, where was was the the great anti-war left in the invasion of Iraq? Like, where did those people go? Like, where are they?
1: Well... (laughs) we we know where they are where they're based out of Michael yeah. Moore well the... yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah they're
0: they're in, they're in DC now yeah they they grew up and they got jobs in DC they're they're uh, defense contractors they're uh, they're lobbyists themselves they are they're the they're getting their own piece of um of the cut in this conflict and uh, is it's pretty disgusting
1: you know scale. i think that's the issue is that i see uh, in the past, for instance, we've had provocations before. I mean, this isn't the first time in that specific area where we've had even American troops, uh, you know, mass casualty event, for instance, in Lebanon and Beirut in 86. Right. And, yeah. and so it's not the first time. However, it is the first time under the State Department, for instance, uh, applying in such a ham fisted way, I guess, let's say diplomacy, right? So basically, without the kind of. Uh, I guess keen decisions you know responsibility of defusing tensions I think the people that are in control of which is very concerning to me as an American is basically denouncing anyone who disagrees with the policy coming from Washington left or right is a terrorist or some kind of other crazy buzzword and then basically you know what we're seeing is people it's like jingoism without the jingo, if that makes sense. It's like, there is only one acceptable uh, course of action here. I mean, have you seen that?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, what I think a lot of people fail to realize is that uh, Zionism is a form of nationalism. Um, It's a pro-Jewish nationalism. However you think or feel about it what that means is that uh they are going to take every action um that they believe is going to benefit themselves or their citizens or their people um above all other considerations everything else comes second degree you could consider it a a total war um, philosophy, if I can uh, summon gobbles uh, to the conversation. Uh, Like it it would be it's almost like they they learned from uh, late war Third Reich um, um, talking points, uh, the war in Ukraine Talking points, uh, you know, how uh, in Ukraine, uh, Russian citizens are the, the enemies of the uh, U- U- Ukrainian ethnic uh, interests, and so they're targeted for all sorts of terrible things. And um, the, the Palestinian sides, who are, uh, you know, clearly not the sharpest tool in the sheds, uh, they fall into this pattern of uh, violent, violent psychosis. Which is uh, ugly and terrible and all the rest of it, and so uh, that gives the Zionists like all the ammo they need to promote, you know, that image that if you're against us, it's because you're with these guys, and that's the the uh, the, the brilliant propaganda uh, campaign that uh, that they've developed in the whole and honed over decades, and uh, it's, it's pretty terrible.
1: No, of course. And I think that uh, the most interesting thing is, which is unprecedented even during the Cold War, is the presence of two strike carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean. Yes. And I'm sure that you're probably aware of, like, as military, especially ballistic missile technology and censoring is improving like over the horizon capability and engagement is also improving. I mean that's probably the biggest issue we're facing with the PRC is not necessarily that they're having this huge manufacturer of blue water navy, but it also because of their land based ballistic missile technology, which is interdicting any kind of close uh naval assets we might have in the region. I think it's huge misstep. I mean of course I don't know anything. What if I am just an idiot on the internet. However, I would say that like, you know, placing um Two two of our greatest assets so close to the shore with, you know, these, I guess, how do you say, unhinged uh, factions that are capable of actually striking these groups is probably a mistake. I don't know. What's your think on that? Yeah. In fact, there's
0: even rumors of more than two. There's a rumor of a third going into the Mediterranean, and I believe there's uh, a fourth one south of India, monitoring the situation south of Iran. And so um, it seems very <laughs> clear to me that the the signal uh, is being sent to the entire Middle East, that uh, to the United States the is going to support Israel no matter what it does. If you try to do uh, anything to um, stop us or pre- prevent the physical remover, removal of uh, the Gazians, Uh, you're going to get clapped by uh, the combined Israeli-United States Air Force, um, which was a really big deal in the pre-hypersonic missile era, um, (laughs) which only ended uh, not too long ago. Um, Over the last few years, uh, ballistic missiles of the speed that go Mach 7 to Mach 9 flight time Uh, launched, uh, some. I'll give an example, the Kinzel um, missiles fielded by um, uh, Russia that uh, Putin has announced are on permanent patrol in the Black Sea now, monitoring the situation in the Middle East. Uh, Those missiles have a a top speed of Mach 9. Uh, I did some um, napkin math the other day, like what would be, how long would it take for, for one of those missiles to go from international waters north of Turkey to somewhere southeast of, um, uh, Crete, for example. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, it would be around 10 minutes, nine to 10 minutes in time, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> incredible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The, the, the fastest, uh, publicly known, uh, missile defense systems have, a, a speed of Mach 2.5, um. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know there there's probably more there's probably secret ones that of course a civilian like me isn't going to know about but let's just like uh play a game of probabilities like okay let's say they have some secret systems that go mach 4 <laughs> right they're they're still toast right and even at, at that speed there's something like uh even if you were to successfully hit a um a, a tactical ballistic missile at that speed it wouldn't change course right, right, right. <laughs> it's there's like it's just a Ball of like, plasma
1: at that. At that I uh, think the stage. most concerning thing is that the hypersonic technology, especially out of China, is that it can do in flight um, altering of trajectories. So basically, it yeah, can yeah. avoid interdiction, which is also a yeah. problem, too. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going to go on with that, but I do know, I think I kind of wanted to pick your brain about this, but again, I'll just fill this in for the audience, but Erdogan is basically the Islamist party, or moderate right-wing party, I mean, to them, um, in Turkey, and basically he follows a neo-Ottoman line, which is separate from the formation of the Republic of Turkey, which is under Ataturk, and Ataturk, of course, is, like, I guess uh, the modern... Uh, parody or or representative of his faction is really kind of the Grey Wolves, but he's a Neo Ottoman, and it's very interesting to see how he changed his rhetoric to at first being against Hamas and be, now being vocally for it. I don't know if you were tracking on that, but uh, you know, what's your opinion on that? On Turkey's uh, feel for the military situation there?
0: Yeah, yeah, Turkey is uh, nothing to sneeze at militarily, and in the last week, uh, I believe they expelled. The Israeli diplomatic missions, and so that's basically their way of saying we're not going to even we're not going to negotiate with you anymore. We're just we, are our, our ghost and is war. Um, you know, Turkey's uh, military is substantial in the region, um, and but the, problem, the more um, the more relevant to. The, uh, is their uh, uh un- unmanned vehicle industry is huge their drone industry is huge. it's um on par with you united states systems and in some ways better because there it's <laughs> orders of magnitude cheaper and it's pro- that's probably like a hundred orders of magnitude cheaper for them to manufacture off- weapon systems that they can uh, launch on um, infinitely <laughs> to, to Israel and, and of course targets in in the Mediterranean sea so it's the 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 area of us um, military supremacy could be eclipsed in a national warfare situation and none of the policy leaders in are willing to even that that threat exists
1: but could happen at any point yeah, yeah. So I think that's the thing is that um, Turkey is like that wild card of NATO and before it had been the case that NATO took in Turkey because they had a great um, positioning, geopolitical positioning on the USSR but now it seems like Erdogan is like very deftly playing one side against the other, at once being a friend of NATO and then at the other time being a friend of Russia. Um, but I think people really underestimate the um, robustness of uh, the Turkish armed forces. So for instance, we all know that they have a limited engagement in the Syrian civil war, but most people don't know is that they are very much involved in Libya. And sustaining forces, which are part of the, I think, the Grand National Assembly, which is against Haftar, uh, General Haftar, who is the Russian proxy. But then, obviously, conversely, they kind of almost, you know, not, not wink, wink. Um, coordinate with Russian assets in, in Syria. So, I mean, uh, the, these guys are—it's not a, a joke. It's not like some Arab state, like you know, the Iraqi forces in two thousand three, where it's just a walkover, and they just get pummeled, and we just walk over their, you know, carcasses. I mean. Turkey is a very like robust country with a very sizable and potent land force with a million men under arms, and it has a, a significant air force that's a very advanced, as well as of course, as you just mentioned above, um, their UAS systems and the you know, uh, basically their ability to manufacture a whole slew of drones with different capabilities um, that are actually proving to be the new. Um, introduction or mode of war uh, especially as we're seeing in Ukraine and for whatever reason it feels like the IDF hasn't learned from the lessons of Ukraine by proxy and and there's this famous saying it's like um, you know, a dumb man keeps on making the same mistake Uh, a smart man learns from his own mistake and a wise man learns from the mistakes of others and it feels like the IDF didn't do any of those things at all so I don't know what that makes them you know what I mean (laughs) like I don't know what that happens so yeah So I think people really underestimate the situation, and I think people also are not, like, they don't understand the fact that Israel is a nuclear-capable country, Um, and it's something that we keep under wraps for very good reason because I think it would be very controversial. However, I think um, it's a concerning aspect because what is the case, I think the reason why the U.S. is so prone or uh, provoked to defend Israel is the less than any personal attachment. Of course, they're personally attached, but I think it's also a matter of, you know, stopping nuclear war. (laughs) I I don't know. What what would you think about that? Uh,
0: That would be great to me. Uh, Let me ask you a question, Lance. Um, You see on Twitter tomorrow um, uh, video confirmation. Um, The two U.S. um, carriers... Uh, in the Mediterranean were sunk with no survivors
1: um, what happens next? Well I, I think no matter who sunk those carriers I think it's very well known that we would basically invade Iran I think that's enough of a problem <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we would,
0: That would be a 9-11 uh, or even maybe better a Pearl Harbor that would be a Pearl Harbor kind of experience for us that um has unpredictable consequences and and yeah and yeah you could basically blame whoever you wanted at that point because uh American public doesn't seem to really be, care <laughs> one about the, the truth one way or another so yeah but you could blame russia russians did it and uh that would be wildly popular with the media and politicians would get elected on that like yeah why not declare, declare war on on russia <laughs> and you know the uh, the, um, what is it, the Overton window has shifted so radically uh, this month that uh, it, it's, we're in unprecedentedly dangerous times. Like, the, the I'm kind of reminded of, like, the, the Cuban Missile uh, Crisis. Like, we are way beyond that like that that is like looking in the rear view window <laughs> <laughs> and we're we're and, uh, and our train is not stopping right we're we're going in, we're going in a direction and uh uh it's, a, it's
1: it, gonna, i mean it's, it's a under, it's just like uh lennon said it's uh there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen and i feel like that's exactly what happened uh in the last uh, i guess i guess you know what 14 days uh specifically and already we're seeing A number of lobbying uh, institutions trying to rattle the war drum here, and I think it's really irresponsible because, I mean, if you think about it, if you game theory it through, let's say, okay, we're stupid enough to actually invade a capable country like Iran, and somehow, of course, we'll beat them. It's not a question of whether we'll beat them. It's a question of at what cost. Will we score an outright victory or a pyrrhic one? But more importantly what is it what does it mean follow on as so their allies in the PRC uh they'll f- obviously feel very much alarmed of course you know on top of everything else there will be a massive inst- destabilizing effect which we felt with Iraq um the oil supply from that region will be significantly interdicted and i think that will affect the markets more than they are already being affected now and so oh oh yeah yeah, Do so... you see the PRC
0: ha- has a fleet um, in uh, south of Iran? Uh, no, I did, a... I did not. Yeah, they have, they have six frigates um, in the south of Iran right now, monitoring the situation. They have their uh, both missile ships and uh, electric uh, electronic warfare ships there.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, that's that's something new. It's definitely something to adds to calculus. I know that like uh, Xi is very like. He's very shrewd with his policy. I mean, uh, that's the thing that you got to ch- hand to the Chinese. I, I, I don't know if people are aware of this, but there's this book uh, called Unrestricted Warfare. And since the 90s, the PRC has been re-revolutionizing their military. They've specifically been, um, you know, rethinking what it means to wage war in a multi-domain kind of, uh, a- I guess, atmosphere or environment. Um, And basically, uh, you know, in the West, we have this weird Chevalier kind of uh, code where it's like, okay, there's like a right and left lateral limit and everything inside is okay, but there are rules and weird regulations. And it's like completely antithema to like anathema, excuse me, anathema to what war really is, which is a broad section front of marshalling all the capabilities of your military to... Uh, you know, or of your country to political ends and the military is simply a facet and I think that's something America is only recently catching up onto of course uh, it used to be that Twitter was an arm of, you know, the Arab Spring and all this kind of stuff for the CIA, but I don't think they're as adept as the Russians or the PRC are with waging information warfare. I mean, we're seeing that now, like, how crazy it is on the Internet. Basically, you see both sides just going crazy, and you're just, like, you're just kind of taking a seat back, and you're like, wow, everyone's kind of saying crazy things. I'm just going to shut up. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Holding back from Fed posting is a good idea, and uh, there there are people out there that are going to try to get the masses wound up for their side. And what uh, none of them want is for us to sit this one out. Um, one of the uh, yeah, interest. There's a lot of uh, very interesting uh, Chinese military uh, theory and uh, history. Um, I could even touch on. Uh, the recent uh events like uh and this is this story has actually been uh pretty suppressed in my opinion um on the topic of uh, information warfare uh that you just mentioned um, the story is uh, uh how uh, in j- just in the last couple days or last week um china has had uh, hundreds of fighter jets um patrolling around taiwan uh ship movements are up like uh, or military ship movements are up by hundreds of percent this month, and you know the, the news or information about that is uh, really not spread um, anywhere in social circles or, or military analyst circles. Like basically, nobody knows about that, and there's kind of um, there's there's kind of a, a cultural trait that I uh, identified um, in some technology industries I've been involved in is that uh, you know. It, saying the word China or, or Chinese is kind of like, uh, admitting, like, you have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> because it's <laughs> like, like, no one actually like really knows, like, what is Xi's, you know, strategy? What is, you know, the goals of the CCP? Like, does anybody know? Like, not really. Like, uh, actually, um, uh, I could ask you Lance, like, um, what is, the what's the uh, official name of, uh, of uh the government in Taiwan.
1: So it's the Republic of China technically. Yes. And you... uh, how
0: recently did you learn that?
1: <laughs> well, I mean I learned that because um a history spurg, so that's different, but yeah. I know that the Kuomintang like escaped over there after the successful uh I guess well, semi-successful but largely in part communist revolution in the mainland. And you know, you're absolutely correct. I mean, most people you know, as soon as they say Chinese, I mean, they're, they're really revealing their ignorance because, uh, first of all, China is not really China. It's the People's Republic, you know, Communist Party China. And their feels for their, like, I guess it was, it is a continuation of Chinese history and, and political tradition. Um, and, I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative and the String of Pearls are something that are considered, but there's already... You know, uh, proxy conflicts happening in Africa, for instance, to secure rare earth minerals and uh, obviously posts of trade. And also, more importantly or more alarmingly, like they're setting up massive naval bases in Argentina. Are you aware of that, too? No, that's news to me. So, in uh, Patagonia, they basically, the Argentinian government under the Communist um, Party, or, well, they self-describe center-left, but they're all commies. But basically, <laughs> they uh, they lease this hundred-hectare uh, property in Patagonia, where basically the Chinese are setting up a massive naval installation. And of course, if any Americans like knows that basically the Monroe Doctrine reserves South America as their personal backyard, no matter where it is, e- even if it's the you know the Cape, you know, or whatever. It's basically uh, very much, very concerning because their power of encroachment and their ability to co-opt uh, republics and so on and so forth starts like this. Basically, their pattern of subduing a nation starts with loans. So, international governments—this uh, is for the audience, by the way—but international governments approach, uh, you know, smaller states that are in debt or have some problems or want some infrastructure built. And usually the United States does this. Basically, they say, "Okay, we'll build your highway um, and loan you money, but before we do that, you have to promise free elections. You have to do gay rights. You have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to blah, blah, blah. All this kind of crap, right?" And the you know the the juice for the squeeze is not really good for these states. But the PRC comes in, and they don't care what you do. Dude, you could be doing genocide in your country, like in the Congo, or you could do whatever. But basically, they're like, okay, we'll give you this amount of money. They'll loan shark them. And if you can't pay in time, which they never do, uh, in the case in point in Argentina, uh, basically, they're like, okay, in that case, we'll take payment of a lease, a hundred-year lease on this uh, specific piece of land. So, for instance, in Djibouti, that's exactly what happened and the PRC is setting up a massive naval base and of course as the debt accrues that base you know the 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 ex- exclusive rights of the PRC to trade with that country encroaches the political structure becomes uh, basically bought by the PRC and controlled, and that's basically their mode of existence. Is that they kind of come in, foot in the door, hook in the door with the economic aspect, and then they build out their military capabilities, and then they enforce that and bring to bear all their state capabilities to coercing and flipping that republic to their sphere. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how aware of you you are of that, but that's happening massively in, uh, in uh, Africa right now where basically Russians are helping coups d'etats <laughs> across in Chad and Gabon and it's all flipping away from the United States which is very concerning for us because a lot of, for instance, the stuff that comes in our smartphones comes straight from Congo, you know what I mean, for instance. Or, you know, there's a uranium uh, deposits in Chad which is where the French get the majority of their uranium fuel. So for us, I mean, in the United States, we're a great power because we have a great space. We have, obviously, agricultural lands, a ton of arable land. We have a ton of, like, natural resources. We have oil. We have literally everything. And the reason why we go out into the world is to basically make sure that our enemies don't get it. That that basically we're like a mafia boss, right? We don't want our enemies getting that. Uh, But it seems like China has been ascendant in that aspect. I mean, do you have anything to add to that point?
0: Um. Well, yeah, I I totally agree with you, and and that's a a really great uh, description of of how states, um, you know, extend uh, their military power over the world. You can even see uh, the U.S. influence in that, like, yeah, you you can't pay back your your loans, okay, how about a military base? Oh, you can't pay the interest? Well, how about another military base? Oh, another one? And it goes on and on and on until it's like basically your country is taken over. It's a satrap. Can... <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's got to be uh, some good video game references to this. Um... I think the, the most image ref-
1: of, the, oh, of the empires. So. There you go. There you go. I think the most refreshing thing is though is that um you know it's not the end of history as much as it is tragic and stuff but the the essence of hum- being human is tragedy. It is of course life, love, passion but it also the you know converse of that. It's a uh, conflict, hatred, animosity, conflict, you know, competition in general. And I think we're you know what's the Chinese proverb? It's um uh, may we live in interesting times and certainly these are interesting times indeed. Um, I think one of the most concerning things is that America doesn't know how to like recoil from overextending. So the Roman Empire lasted so long because they were shrewd geopoliticians, if that makes sense. They were, they were They didn't do all this idealistic thing and Henry Kissinger actually kind of writes this down in his book Diplomacy and he talks about how America deals with the wider world from an idealistic standpoint and it comes to the detriment of our safety. Basically, it comes to the detriment of our country and our, our economy. And, uh, because you know, wherever we go, it has to be whatever crazy fad we're on at this point. So w- with Woodrow Wilson, it was basically enforcing the league of nations and the democracy in in a Europe, which actually was a catalyst to what happened in the second world war. Um, But that is the thing that the Chinese and the Russians and everyone else are kind of bringing back is just this real politic, this very transactional, mercenary um, relations between nations. You know what I mean? Basically, like, I get X, you get Y. There's no strings attached as far as what you believe. I don't care as long as it benefits me. And I think that's very refreshing. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and it it, uh, actually highlights one of the the main weaknesses of a, a republic... That, uh, in a um, o- over a change of elections and administrations in power, uh, results to completely different priorities and even um, opposite priorities of the prior years, leading to a complete uh, <laughs> so sort of bewilderment and uh, abandonment of uh projects and uh, relationships investments that take like years or decades to mature. And that's because we have no national strategy based on uh, some underlying principles like we used to have in the past that has been replaced uh, by uh, fashions and our our, a lot of our recent um, policies can uh, o- only make sense if you, can, if you can imagine that there's a, a puppet master pulling the strings in the direction that they want the policy to go, irregardless of the price of, of the cost, because it doesn't cost them anything but it it does cost us. You, you and know, that's why we do with inflation.
1: You're absolutely right, and I think that's the most interesting um parallel, a structural parallel that we're America is in right now because obviously I hate using this because it's always the midwits and the middle brow type people that are always, you know, making allusions to the Roman Empire, but they have no idea what they're talking about. But basically the late Roman Republic was a similar situation where you know, in the US, we're ostensibly a republic or a democracy or whatever crap, but really we're ruled by an international clique of oligarchs that are in charge of vast parts of our economy. And so they are the ones affecting political change and whoever else has interest lobbies. Um, but of course, these lobbies are stronger than the state apparatus themselves, and they're kind of doing things on the basis of self-interest, their small self-interest, as well as politicians are doing and saying things based on election cycles, which is on a two-year, you know, constant turnover. And that's what Rome was going through, which is basically, you know, you have people like Pompey Magnus and uh, Julius Caesar, Caligula, not Caligula, excuse me, Sulla, And the Gracchi brothers before is basically these private individuals were wielding so much power by themselves, but not complete power. And as members of the aristocracy, they were playing off each other in this kind of very race to the bottom shorting of the political country. Um, all to the detriment, and ultimately w- what culminated in what's called the Roman Revolution, which is the appointment of a Caesar, which for Julius Caesar, of course, he was dictator perpetual, but like it was Augustus who really kind of brought it to the fore. The only way I think America com- overcomes the issues that it's about to be shattered on is whether it can decide to have some kind of you know, Caesar-type figure who balances the interests of the elites with the people who has their be- best interests at heart, or basically we fail to do that and we we basically shatter and we disappear from the world stage, which is a very real possibility. And so, I mean, what's your kind of forecast on that?
0: Uh, yeah, those are all great points, and um, yeah, I, I would uh, – uh, I'm in complete agreement. Might even tack on some more detail there, like the the differences between uh, the elites and the people are uh, is very real in America today, and even in in the ancient world, it was uh, what they called the um, the conflict between the orders, the plebeian working classes versus the patrician ruling classes, and. Uh, the interests of the patricians were really um, as an agricultural society and even a, a slave- based society, like their, their economic interests were tied to the land, they were tied to the people as uh, stable uh, um, agricultural development required you know decades and or years, decades and centuries in order to reap all of the uh, benefits from it. And uh, that conflict that, uh, that we still have today, say between um, the class conflict between uh, white working class people and you know, cosmopolitan uh, multi-ethnic groups in uh, coastal cities today um, is uh, characterized by the same kind of conflicts between uh, values and uh, economic gains. Like there are uh, uh, there are huge um, winners and losers in our society, just as there are there will always be throughout any societies. But I want people to question, like, who do they want to benefit? Like, what is the kind of country that we want to be? Bequeath, bequeath to our, our children and grandchildren? Are, are we going to be a country that remains true to the heritage, traditions, and experience of what it means to be an American? Or are we going to throw all that uh, away and become something else? Are we going to, quote unquote, decolonize ourselves? Are we going to be... Uh, are we going to ascend into a uh, Star Trek uh, technocratic utopia, where we abandon our, um, or our nationalist or so-called tribal past, or uh, do we uh, maintain uh, those, those traditions? And that's, that's something that um, I think everyone should take very seriously.
1: I think that's and, uh, uh, that's part, just to ahead. interdict really quick, I think that's uh, the main aspect that I try to bring and try to like tell people is just uh, part of patriotism isn't <laughs> this rah-rah, like going to war wherever you're sicked at. It's caring for your neighbor. It's putting, it's not just about yourself. Basically, it's the antithesis of the boomer sentiment. It's not this uh, individualist uh, pull yourself up by your stupid bootstraps which actually by the way they didn't uh they had it handed to them you know their parents gave it to (laughs) them um they actually the boomers are probably going to go down as the worst generation the entirety of human Ah, okay hey dress i think we got cut off for there for a second there the enemy is jamming our systems so uh you know I think it's important to note that the Eisenhower, I don't know if you know this or not, but the the task force that was in the Eastern Mediterranean just recently got transferred through the Suez out into the coast of Iran. Uh, that's a big happening. Uh, if that is any registered to you. Um, but aside from that, brother, I just really want to appreciate you coming on. Um, I want to have you on a lot more in the future. And uh, if, before we go, if you could just tell me about uh, your uh, latina linguamachina.com project you got going on, that would be kind of cool too.
0: Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, there's definitely uh, a lot of risks in the world today, and the uh, situation of the naval forces build up in the Mediterranean and uh, in the, uh, south of uh, India reminds me a lot of the, the build up to, to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. But, um, yeah, for uh, Latina Lingua Machina is a language learning website that enables people to learn classical Latin using artificial intelligence. And it exists with a chatbot that will teach you everything you need to know in order to start uh, learning how to read and write in Latin or any other language that you're interested in. But the, the main emphasis is on Latin.
1: I see. Interesting. I think I'm, g- I'm definitely, I'm sure you know that I'm uh, one of those guys that's trying to get into learning Latin and then I'll work my way over to Greek at some point. But uh, I'll make sure to put your URL down in the, uh, the description box below just for our legionaries out there trying to, trying to get erudite, you know what I mean? So in any case, brother, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. I'll definitely have you around uh, as the situation develops. Sounds
0: great. Thanks so much for having me, Lance.
1: Thank you so much. And uh, this, is, uh, this is General Lance and uh, Sergeant Barnes and Andreas from Ling- Latina Lingua Machina signing off.